3: podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at org. Tonight we're going to Lane Cove in Sydney. Did you know that Lane Cove is the sister city of Gunnedah on the Liverpool Plains? Well, I didn't. I hadn't heard of that relationship but apparently it was built up in the millennial drought when Lane Cove raised a lot of money through concerts and a sort of meetings with farmers that helped them through that terrible time. Now the farmers have come back to Lane Cove to appeal to all of us. It was a warm afternoon and food was laid out as if it was a harvest festival. The business was very serious. Tony Windsor was there and Tim Duddy from Karuna Downs. We'll hear from them later. Also there are a number of women farmers who defended their land really eloquently and a youth group who have started to try to appeal to all Australians about this food bowl through Facebook. They reckon they can grow Anything on the Liverpool Plains. It's rich black soil. They say it's as rich as the soils of the Ukraine, and apparently it's quite rare to have soils that will retain the water like these soils do. At the moment, they're producing wheat, corn, sunflower, barley for your beer, and chickpeas for your humus, as well as beef, lamb, wool, and cotton. The villain in this story is Shenhua. It's a Chinese state owned company. The watermark mine would cover 35 square kilometres. Can you imagine the climate impact of 10 million tonnes of coal each year coming out of that new mine? Opening new mines now makes a mockery of all efforts to cut emissions. And as the farmers said, who in their right mind would allow this to go ahead? I thought Tony Windsor, our father of the water trigger, offered a circuit breaker to Shenhua.
4: I I think in terms of the the Chinese mine, that the Chinese are looking for a way out.
3: You'll hear more from Tony Windsor later. It seemed to me that the thrust of the meeting was not really against Shenhua itself, but against our political system that has allowed this permission, who's trending to give a permission to the foreign company to mine here. Barnaby Joyce sent his apologies to the meeting, but he said he supports the Liverpool Plains farmers. It's becoming a little hotter now for him because in a deal struck between the new Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and the Nationals uh, on September the 15th, responsibilities for matters relating to water has been moved from the Environment Department and the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and it has been given to the Nationals' Deputy Leader and Agriculture Minister Barnaby Joyce. Prue Green sets the scene. She grew up in the Liverpool Plains area and is Secretary of the Karuna Coal Action Group.
5: Hi, everyone. I've been a part of Tim's life and a a committee member of the Karuna Coal Action Group now since 2010. Prior to this time, I was sitting on the sidelines. I was living in the area, but I was sitting on the sidelines thinking nobody in their right mind would mine the Liverpool Plains. So I never got involved. As time went on, I realised this thing is looking very serious and I need to get involved. My first introduction to the CCAG fight was attending the Karuna blockade. And most of you are probably familiar with the Shenhua coal mine at Breezer, but there's also an underground mine proposed by BHP at Karuna, which is a stone's throw from Breeza, So we're threatened by not only the Shenhua Watermark open-cut mine, but the underground coal mine at Karuna as well. Now, the blockade was formed in protest against BHPB accessing the Duddy family property. The community said no, and the blockade was formed. The blockade lasted 615 days and was lifted when the New South Wales Supreme Court ruled that BHP had breached the Mining Act. This was the first example I experienced of how committed and determined this community was. The group has always attempted to work with the planning process and we never imposed to the landholders whether they should engage or not engage with the mining companies. Some landholders chose to engage and others refused. Some participated initially, but when the quality of the work that was handed back to them that the consultants that these mining companies employed came back to the landholders, it was terrible. The information was inaccurate. They really hadn't invested the time that was should have been allocated to this type of assessment. So they've now decided we're not having any further to do with these mining companies. In June 2014, the Shenhua Watermark Planning Assessment Commission was held at Gunnedah. The hearing went for two days and numerous submissions were presented from community members and very credible consultants on the inadequacy of the EIS, the concerns with the project and the risk to agricultural productivity. These presentations were factual and they were emotional. Again, Again, one would think no one in their right mind could approve a, lo- a mine on the Liverpool Plains. The Pact made 25 recommendations in an attempt to safeguard mining activities so that the Liverpool Plains and surrounding groundwater aquifers had some level of protection. <coughs> so there was 25 recommendations. 19 of these 25 recommendations were rejected. Two were partially adopted and four adopted. This demonstrated that if the recommendation impact on mining operations, they were ignored. The community was very, very disappointed with the outcome of the PAC. On the 6th of November, a few of us came to Sydney and we met with the New South Wales Planning Minister and the Secretary of New South Wales Planning. During those meetings we talked about the floodplain, the uh, the land acquisition, the PAC report, the soils, agriculture, We covered everything, all the issues regarding Shenhua Watermark. We offered the University of New South Wales Water Research Laboratory work that they'd completed on Dr Colin Mackey's work. Now, Dr Colin Mackey was employed by the PAC to look at Shenhua Watermark's water modelling. We offered the work that University of New South Wales had done for us on Colin Mackey's work because we thought the information was valuable to part of the planning process review. We also asked for some information that they promised that they would provide. Five days after that meeting, we discovered and we were advised that the second pack, the determination pack, was going to occur in Gunnedah in December. We were meeting with these people, talking about the project, talking about the issues, laying it on the table, and nobody thought that it would be important to tell us that the work in preparation for that planning assessment commission had already been completed, And that they had a date, because five days, they would have known. And we were really disappointed again. Fifty-eight speakers presented at the December 2014 Determination Pack predominantly against the project. A number of consultants presented on behalf of CCAG with the main topics being economics and water. Once again, the community and consultant presented a strong argument only to have the project approved by the New South Wales Government with conditions. The next step was for the project to be referred to Greg Hunt, Federal Environment Minister, for EPBC approval, with the project being referred again to the IESC. The government has tried to reassure Australia that the application has gone through a very stringent process and that the approval has been given with strictest conditions. The stringent process has allowed the proponent numerous opportunities to get it right, and they still haven't got it right. Obviously, water is the main issue. The towns, the irrigators, landholders, the stock, all rely on this water. The unfortunate thing that a lot of people in town think that water comes from a tap. They don't think where it actually starts from. So there's a lot of education still and you think that they would know that, but they don't. I live very close to the Werris Creek mine and I see every day how much water is being pumped from their mine pit. This mine is a tiny little mine compared to Shenhua and Whereas Creek doesn't have the infrastructure that Breezer does. The business community is very focused on the jobs and so as soon as the mining companies say there's going to be 600 jobs, 800 jobs and I'm sure these figures are often plucked out of the air, the, the, te- the business community gets excited. At Whereas Creek, a mining camp is being proposed which means that there will be fly-in, fly-out workers for both these mines if they are approved. The jobs argument is very weak Due to the current coal price, coal demand and the short time the mine is in operation compared to the longevity of agriculture.
6: Wind power, wave power Power from the sun The power of our marching feet Our voices raised along the street We'll see this battle won
3: is a Gunadah Shire councillor and he has a beautiful farm on the Liverpool plains. I first, m- first met him a few years ago. He and the Karuna people were blockading their land with big logs across the gates. I was with a busload of people from Newcastle on a listening tour of the coal areas of the Hunter. We camped on their land and heard how they were fending off BHP Billiton at the Karuna uh, area. Next morning, Tim invited us up to a sumptuous breakfast on his veranda. This was Patrick White country, and I think now how vocal Patrick would be to see this fertile land undermined for coal and putting the water and the food bowl and the very biosphere at risk. In fact, the whole story sounds like something uh, from a Patrick White novel with the cosmos at stake. Anyway, here's Tim Duddy.
6: I think the take-home message today is that clearly we are in a pile of processes that have failed. Now, one thing that we did as a community, we blockaded when there was a need to do so because BHP were trying to gain access to our lands that were going to harm our water resources and we were not comfortable with their exploration activities. I do not believe that this mine, once it is given a mining licence, um, that a blockade will actually stop it because we are against the Chinese government who are immune, do do not answer to shareholders and do not do any of those things. So we have several processes. One is we can either vote the government out and get someone to make some meaningful statement prior to an election that they actually um, deal with after the election, which, as we've seen in several governments from all persuasions, uh, they are very brave about talking about protecting the environment, but once they're actually voted in, their courage seems to evaporate uh, with their uh, you know, statements to the governor. But the thing that is important here now is that every office, state and federal politician is bombarded with people who say this isn't an appropriate project. Every time they walk in the street, every time Mike Baird goes to hop on his surfboard in Manly on a Saturday morning, people need to go and say to him, what the hell is happening with the Liverpool Plains? and what is going to happen and when do we actually stop. Uh And that is the only way that things change. And of course, if we don't get evolution, what ends up happening is revolution, just ask the French. There was a question
7: for Tony Windsor. Is the declining coal price making the project less viable?
4: I'm not privy to um, BHP or Shanghai's books, but those that seem to know far more than I do at least uh, suggest that at 50 US dollars thermal coal uh, is unviable now whether it stays at that level uh, is anybody's guess uh, my guess is that it's pr- more likely to than not uh, I I think in terms of the, the Chinese mine, that the Chinese are looking for a way out and Anthony Roberts could in fact give them that way out or Premier Baird, or uh, Minister Hunt at the federal level uh, could uh, present them with an opportunity uh, to get out the the New South Wales government has a similar mine uh, not that far from Mudgie 10 million tonnes a year uh, on its licence to be extracted similar coal quality uh, and that mine's for sale. That mine's for sale. All environmental approvals have been given. It's uh, it's a, a state-owned project that they don't, But they don't particularly want the state uh, to mine it. Uh, the, the, uh, they seem to be comfortable with the state of China mining this other one. So, the the capacity is there for Premier Baird to uh, go to the Chinese and say there is. This mine in uh, uh, much lower risk country uh, that the New South Wales government has that uh, could be façade. I d- I disagree with Tim a little bit on that on that last question. Uh, I think it will involve th- the community if in fact sanity doesn't prevail and the various ministers don't put a stop button on this. Uh, I think. Uh, you will see a rallying site around those Aboriginal sites, and so you should. And uh, you know, you'll see something, potentially, the magnitude of the Frankton River. So yes. this is not just critical to these people. As I said, it's critical right down the the, the system. But it's critical in terms of developing up a process that actually works, and obviously the one that's there at the moment is not working.
3: We're at a meeting... Of the Liverpool Plains farmers who've come down to Sydney to explain the threat to their land. Tony Windsor, the father of the water trigger, explains the risks to groundwater systems of mines.
7: What has gone so wrong in the decision-making process to get us to this point and what do you think we can do about it?
4: Essentially what we've got is a failed process that doesn't uh, and can't apply in areas where you have massive <laughs> groundwater systems such as this one. What, what we've had in the past, and whether people agree with coal mines or don't agree with coal mines, most of them have been relatively small and most of them have been in areas uh, where there, are, there are, is relatively uh, small amounts of, of groundwater. All of them have some sort of impact. In this case, well, in those cases... Governments uh, particularly state have developed a planning process that essentially looks at a coal mine as if it's within a perimeter and you will get approval for that coal mine or, or other any mine uh, if in fact you can demonstrate that the environmental and other impacts of that activity can be constrained to that area and <coughs> so. We've got this sort of box process. Now that's been there uh, for quite some years. Uh, The the former, uh, well now disgraced, Labor minister then, Macdonald issued. I know you're all very. I know you're all fans of him, particularly Arthur. (laughs) But uh, the. Issuing of these exploration licences on the Liverpool Plains was the first time, in Australia really, that licences were issued over floodplains with these massive groundwater systems below them. As I said earlier, this is the biggest system in the Murray-Darling system, so it is critically important. But they still applied the same planning process as a mine with no water, uh, for argument's sake. I'm oversimplifying it. Along came uh, Barry O'Farrell, and uh, Barry tried to modify that. But the Fox had been let out by MacDonald in terms of the exploration licence and the expectation, particularly from the Chinese government, that once they got an exploration licence, they would have a licence to mine, not just a licence to explore. And now you have the free trade agreement at the Commonwealth level which is compounding that uh, as well. Along comes the process. The process doesn't work because the very existence of water, which I'm told does run downhill, (laughs) the very existence of water in that landscape means that if something goes wrong, if the artery is cut, if the artery is cut, if something goes wrong, the impact (coughs) of that action could occur many many kilometers hundreds of kilometers who knows away from the mine site so the capacity to, to hold the, the the impacts of the mine and they all have impacts within the perimeter uh, and the risks that that has to uh, to groundwater uh, magnified many files that's essentially what's wrong with it uh, I was in, I've been in the, uh, the federal parliament I was in the state parliament, Prior to that, as well, but in the federal parliament, uh, I was instrumental in getting what's called a water trigger up so that the Environmental uh, Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, that Tony Abbott is actually trying to remove, or sections of it, including the water trigger, uh, but also the uh, a section called 487, which relates to third party rights, to, for Australians to have some say in terms of the environmental impacts on their resources. Liverpool claims is as much yours as it is these people. The water is owned by everybody. Uh, The water trigger was put in place to try and overcome some of these circumstances. An independent expert scientific committee was set up. It was funded with $200 million. And part of what it had to do, and this is partly where the bastardry comes in, part of what it had to do was look at these particular areas, the Liverpool Plains being the, the major one because of the water resource within it, to look at the total catchment and try and model the, the impacts of some of these activities, including agriculture and irrigated agriculture on those particular landscapes. Now that is called a bioregional assessment. Uh, Minister Burke in the Hung Parliament uh, put in put that in place for the Independent Expert Scientific Committee to actually go ahead and and uh, do their work since the uh, incumbents have come in uh, the bioregional assessment has disappeared, there's been a range of other uh, very technical but very important when you're trying to gauge the capacity of a landscape to absorb certain activities, particularly when you're at the gravitational forces of water uh, a a process that uh, was called a spatial risk assessment, risk not mentioned in the current planning process the risk isn't there. there risk, the, a spatial risk assessment of all of these activities, human activities, can have on that particular landscape. Those are the th- things that the current state government have taken out altogether. Now, a lot of people say, oh, we've done everything we can, we can't do any more. Uh, the, the Premier Baird is one of those, but oh, we can't do any more. Uh, a lot more can be done. The bioregional assessment process could be completed, independent of the political process to actually see what the risk levels are in terms of this. I think one of the previous speakers mentioned that the the, uh, Planning Assessment Commission highlighted uh, some of these issues. The Independent Scientific Committee, even though it's it's been vandalised to the extent that it hasn't carried out its bioregional assessment process, it highlighted we don't know the cumulative impacts of these things and we need to know that. One thing I would just say in conclusion, just, just to give you some perspective in terms of this, We've just had it at the Commonwealth level uh, a, a lot of talk about water and the importance of water to Australia and agriculture in particular and uh, encouraging people to maybe move north. I know Lane Cargo is one of those groups. <laughs> uh, move, move north where the water is. Where the water is. Now the Namoi Valley, which the Liverpool paints is a very important part but the Namoy Valley has groundwater systems right through it not totally it, is th- it has 3 million acres of some of the best land in the world that's over 10% of the arable land in Australia and the best of it the Ord River where we keep hearing people <laughs> say, let's go north, let's go north where the water is in that big uh, uh, lake, Lake Argyle They've been trying to develop that for 40 or 50 years. The total amount of arable agriculture in the Ord River is 50,000 acres. <laughs> and we're, we're going to put billions of dollars into of resources into trying to develop that land when we're quite happy to put the biggest groundwater system, some of the best soil in the Murray-Darling, close to where the people live, and put that at risk. So I just urge you to to talk to Anthony Roberts Anthony Roberts has been landed with this with this problem it's been the creation of slow planning process for many years that haven't encompassed the potential impacts of water on these mega mines and uh, the, what we need to do here is stop We've stopped everything else. We've stopped the boats. We've stopped this. Stopped yeah. this. <laughs> we, 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 we need to stop this and develop a, a process that is appropriate uh, to the circumstances of the landscape. And that can be done through this bioregional assessment uh, process. So if you, if you can get in anybody's ear, then you can, you can hear the enthusiasm in these young people, the way in which they address agriculture. If you can get in anybody's ear, Tell them to pull this thing up and get the science right and then make decisions based on objective science rather than the political pollution of the science that we've got at the moment.
6: Wind power, wave power.
3: the beyond zero emissions show the liverpool plains farmers are asking for your help to stop the Shenhua coal mine company destroying the food bowl some bright young farmers now tell us why they've got together you can check out their Facebook page at Liverpool Plains Youth. They're having a harvest festival in November and the Gomoroi Traditional Owners and these youth group will be inviting us up to learn direct action tactics, to camp out and to enjoy some of the sights that you can see in the beautiful summer time on the Liverpool Plains. After the break, we'll hear from Kate Davidson, Maddie Coleman, and Sarah Hubbard.
2: Um, the decision to put a mine at Breezer would be a a watershed decision with regard to land use policy and would be just a huge downer for agriculture in the region like Prue when I first heard about the exploration licence, the first one was BHP, I thought (laughs) that'll never go ahead, that's just a really dumb idea and then as time went on there was another one and then it seemed like oh they're really quite interested in this and and um, and then next thing we had oh there's coal seam gas there too so we had a bit of a battle with that, it's quietened down a bit now but this whole thing really, it stems down to the regard the government has for agricultural land this the Liverpool Plans really is just amazing agricultural land I made the unusual decision as a girl to go home farming which has been a decision that I've Never regretted. It. It's just a, it's a wonderful place to live uh, in the Liverpool Plains, and it's really progressive. It's it's just a great place to grow things. We've got great climate, great soils, and proximity to market, which give us a long-term competitive advantage globally. Uh, so, the government in approving this mine would be willfully destroying prime agricultural land. The question has never been. Will there be damage? It's always been how much? What is acceptable risk? So this leaves us questioning how safe is our future? How safe is it for us to invest our futures in agriculture? In the region, we know there's vast fossil fuel resources across the Liverpool Plains and we, we need certainty in land use policy to be able to really put our whole lives into developing businesses and growing food. Uh, so I would like the same opportunities for the generations to come to be able to forge successful careers in agriculture on the best lands that Australia has to offer and live in a really beautiful part of the world.
1: Thanks for coming. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your support for being here, so thank you very much. I basically moved to Breezer last year, I've been on properties since I finished school um, and I now live with my partner on his parents' property uh, at Breezer Station. Um, their property borders Shenhua, um, so that's basically my boyfriend's, uh, father, he's very actively involved in the criminal action group, um, and when I first moved to the property, he sort of, you know, explained everything that was happening, and you, if you go there, you just cannot believe that they would even consider something like this. It is just devastating, um. So basically a, a friend of ours, her, uh, his mother sort of said last year you, the youth should join a group and the next week we basically got all the young, um, you know, the young farmers around the Liverpool Plains and we decided to, to join a group. Um, we have a very active Facebook page and we basically just want to show Australia and, and the rest of the world that we want to farm in this area. Um, you know, it's, it's a brilliant area. As everyone said, it's the most productive farmland. Um, and the water underneath it, we want a chance to be able to farm this, you know, for the rest of our lives and our kids' lives. Um, So we've had a few... uh, We had, you know, a barbecue up at Spring Ridge, which was great, and we've just recently had a tractor drive. Uh, Jackie Lambie came up for that. That was brilliant. Um, Tony Windsor was there. Uh, There's a video coming out soon, and I wish I could have shown it today because it's brilliant, but, um, you know, we, we basically... Do all of our adver- like uh, our promoting and advertising, I guess through social media, um, it's the way to get to all the young, the young people, and and now, you know, all generations on Facebook, um, Twitter, Instagram. Um, that's yeah, that's basically
0: our story. Thanks. Basically, I've I've lived um, on the Liverpool Plains my entire life. I came down to Sydney and um, did my schooling years down here and. Then I um, completed my law degree in Armidale and practiced as a solicitor last year and then um, did sort of what Kate did and decided that I wanted to return home. And um, I've, I've always been drawn back um, living at home with my parents. Um, it's it's a, a, the most amazing place you could live. Um, the lifestyle, It's it's funny, without the group I probably wouldn't have met Um, Maddie and all of the people in the area Um, a a bad situation has brought a good group of friends together Um, we're we're hoping that um, what we're trying to do um, is going to impact on everyone's lives um, to show everyone that you know um, we we won't (coughs) um, just lay down and let this happen Um, I don't want, basically I don't want my grandchildren thinking that I didn't do anything about it because it's not it's not my future. it is well, it is my future, but it's not going to impact me like it will my kids and my grandkids. People don't know the impacts of mining and coal seam gas until it actually happens down in the future. And so we're only uh, the small in we're at the start of it. this is it hasn't even begun, and we're worrying about it already. It's, I'm worried about what's going to happen in the next few <coughs> generations. So basically, I want to stand up for my community. I want to um, stand up for agriculture, um, for the koalas, for everything, for the Aboriginal sites. And I'm not going to back down and we're going to keep going until it's stopped. Um,
3: So that's. You're listening to Radio 3CR. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. The farmers see Shenhua's coal mine on the Liverpool Plains as too risky mainly because of the effect on their water resource. Questions came up also about mine rehabilitation. This would be a 35 square kilometre hole with all the topsoil removed. Could it be restored? Who would pay the ultimate costs? We've heard in previous programs about the ultimate void, how Rio Tinto can't afford to fill in their mine near Bulga, so... What would be the fate of this mine? Prue Green responds.
5: I'm going to have a go at this one, but somebody might also come up and help me out. I don't think it's possible. How can you rehabilitate a mine site that will destroy the water? We've just talked about the koala, the koalas. There's a good chance that a lot of the landholders that are currently operating on viable land will just pack up and go because they can't continue Uh, you know, in this uncertainty of, uh, you know, it it costs a lot to run a property, it's a big investment. And a lot of that investment has been put on hold because of this issue with the mine. So if the mine goes ahead, a lot of these very, very effective and uh, farmers that focus on sustainable farming will just pack up and go. So I don't think it can be rehabilitated.
3: Clearly, climate change was not the main issue at this meeting, as the local impacts of the coal mine would be so dramatic. I can understand where the farmers are coming from. It's so ridiculous to them. How could anyone think of um, threatening their aquifers and their livelihoods? But from where I sit in the city, and I'm sure many of the listeners will feel this way, this whole project could be ruled out by a court saying, well, we can't let a new coal mine go ahead in 2015. The climate-wrecking potential of exported coal is too great. But it sounds as if they're not ready for this in this farming audience. It sounds as if it was quite controversial for them. They don't want to be seen as opposing all coal mines. Their slogan is, the wrong mine in the wrong place. It's not,
7: no new coal mines.
3: So let's hear from Tim Duddy
7: someone has asked, the climate impact of this mine is huge. Is that taken into account
6: when approving the project? (laughs) Where where we go in this room right now, I'm probably going to have to duck for the flying something or other. One of the greatest opportunities that's been lost in Australian agriculture in this century has been the concept of carbon pricing. And until we actually make people pay for what they do to the environment, they are not going to do anything about it. (laughs) And the only way that those costs are properly assessed is to actually make it something they have to assess up front as a real cost in the production of the mine. That has not occurred in any space here. And in the cu- current government view, both state and federal, it's not likely to happen anytime soon. Um, I would hope that the future of Australia is that agriculture, instead of seeing it as being the enemy, they see it as being the friend. And the mining industry sees it as the reason to lift their game.
7: This next question is near and dear to my heart as the Nature Conservation Council. This one's for Tim. Um, Ganada, as you know, is the koala capital of the world, is known as the koala capital of the world. Yet a vital chunk of their habitat is slated for destruction if this project goes ahead. We know that there's a court case currently being run by the local land care group trying to save the koalas. Will you tell us a bit more about the impacts on the koalas if this mind goes ahead?
6: Well, first thing, I'd like to say I'm not a koala expert. <laughs> but I am a farmer, and in a day-to-day farmer's life, we actually look around what happens around us. And there are two things that animals need. One is food and the other is water. Our koala population is healthy at Gunnedah because it is isolated from other populations because of the way that the land lies where we have the huge uh, floodplains that surround these ridge structures that are the areas that they are planning on mining. Those are ridge structures, because uh, they are of a lower farming value, have been left as grazing lands and therefore are covered in considerable natural habitat. One of the things that occurs when you mine both underground and longwall is you actually destroy a lot of the shallow water structures. And koalas require trees to eat. They require dense trees so that when we get our summers that reach up to 46, 47 degrees Celsius... They actually have enough protection, and it doesn't just apply to koalas either, other animals to survive in this area. What happens when you remove all those shallow water sources, the trees that have actually been in those shallow water sources and drinking from those shallow water sources to survive for their three or four hundred year lifespan actually die very quickly. And you can see this in many areas. There's a lot of work that's been done on this recently in a study that uh, Rio Tinto commissioned. (coughs) Shenhua, in its uh, environmental work, have stated that they are going to uh, remove the koalas and uh, resettle them in other places. (laughs) Now, koalas are incredibly territorial and they're so territorial that uh, when you have a male koala that lives in a certain area and you have a female koala that produces one of his children she will then drop his child in his patch and if she then has another koala another baby to another um, buck koala the next year she will then drop it in his patch. (laughs) They are incredibly territorial. So to contemplate that you are going to remove a koala population and put it somewhere is not really a viable option. In some of the work that Shenhua has done, they found a patch of remnant koala habitat to remove all the koalas to, and when someone went out to actually look at it, one of the uh, the scientists that study koala habitat, there's actually no water there. <laughs> because what he actually said was, that if the habitat was as good as they said it was, he couldn't understand why there already weren't koalas there. (laughs) And, of course, the reason why there were no koalas there was because there was no water. So what we are talking about doing is we are talking about putting many, many, many things at risk. And when the um, people did the flora and fauna studies of our region for these mines, and I've lived in that country all my life, the things that they showed us that lived in the trees and the logs and under rocks that I had never seen all my life, but they lived there beside us and survived in their daily life was extraordinary. And the one thing I do know, when they clear fell the whole hill and push it all in a heap and kill the trees from the water, those things won't survive.
7: So is Barnaby Joyce correct? When he says he did all he could?
4: (laughs) (laughs) I think that is a question for me. uh, The answer is no. And and Barnaby knows that. There's an enormous amount that could have been done. I spent some time on that bioregional assessment. I won't go back over that again. That has been brushed aside under his watch. There's no need to do that. It could still come back tomorrow. Greg Hunt could instigate that tomorrow. Now, the reason they're not instigating that is that it takes time to get this right, to develop a process that risk assesses groundwater systems when the scientific knowledge is very scant. I headed up a committee when I was in the State Parliament, a joint federal-state committee, looking at the sustainability issues of groundwater to the farming people in that area. And a lot of those people lost entitlement to get the system to be sustainable. Uh, So I've had some background in terms of uh, the issue, but it is impossible with today's knowledge of groundwater systems to really know what you're doing. Now, in these sensitive systems, uh, we've had the largest bore in the world, for instance, over on a floodplain of this magnitude. We've really got to get it right. And the pressure the process should be based uh, on risk, uh, not on government whim or these uh, uh, assessment uh, programs and processes that are, uh, that are set up, because they're all politicised. The other thing that uh, Barnaby Joyce hasn't done, and I talked about that spatial risk assessment process, the catchment management authority in that area, state-based, I know, Spent six million dollars designing a peer-reviewed, scientifically peer-reviewed uh, computer model to actually gauge impacts to a whole range of things, whether it be in the fauna and flora, water, soil, community, etc., 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 to highlight these various uh, risk profiles of of putting too much pressure on the landscape. Uh, the current state government removed all that. Sacked. Uh, sacked uh, the uh, chair of it, who was also happened to be uh, on the uh, Commonwealth Independent Expert Scientific Committee. He's not anymore. Uh, sacked him, sacked the designer of the, uh, of the process. Uh, it, that process, and we had meetings in Canberra uh, with the CEOs of the major mining companies to look at that process, And they said, not all of them, but probably about 80% of them, said this is the sort of process we need before we even go exploring so that we know we're not going to waste our money exploring in areas where there are high risks. So when Barnaby Joyce and others at the state level say, oh, we've done everything we can, it's out of our hands, they're talking about the, the influence of the Free Trade Agreement, partly on that, but they're talking about being complicit by neglect in terms of the way... This process should work. If I could just add one other thing, and th- you talk about will this be real, will I take it? This mine won't go ahead. It won't go ahead. Uh, and it, it won't go ahead because a lot of people like you people will, uh, will assist in that process. Great. But one,
7: <laughs>
4: one of the things, uh, the reasons it won't go ahead in my view, Is because of the Aboriginal community. Water is a critical issue. The Aboriginal community in this area has some magnificent sacred sites. There are some of the largest grinding stones in this country, the size of double-decker buses, right in the middle of where this company is going to mine. They say they'll just pick them up (laughs) uh, and shift them somewhere else. (laughs) Shift them somewhere else. I believe that when push comes to shove on this that will become the rallying point for the old, and we're we're talking about going to war in Syria at the moment I'm sorry to get off on this subject, We're talking about that part of our reasoning is to try and save obviously people but the other part is to save some of the antiquities of the globe to the Aboriginal community in our area this this these small ridges with their, their antiquities it, are absolutely critical to them and that lady that was up there earlier, all of that has just been brushed aside through a process that has no regard for them but that's where we need help from you people to get some regard for those people and the uh, natural resources that are, that are there
0: um, so what people can do, uh, a few, we've got a few things coming up. So we've got a training weekend in the works, uh, which is, looks like it's going ahead in November. So that's going to be on the Liverpool Plains, um, and it's going to be about... a sort of a non-violent direct action group. So we're, we're trying to uh, educate ourselves, I suppose, about what, what, what we can do next, and we're bringing in some great speakers... Um, probably some entertainment so you know we always have fun on Liverpool (laughs) Plains we would like to have some people come down and actually see how much fun we have (laughs) and have sort of a training weekend in the same process and where we'll be having it um, is hopefully uh, anticipated to be right next door to where the Shenhua project is actually going ahead so um, you'll get a first hand look of exactly what's going on Um, and then obviously our um, greatest um, idea is to come to Sydney and have a mass rally in Sydney and have as many people involved in that as we can as possible. You know, we, we want it to be the biggest mass rally on Sydney Parliament or wherever we're going to walk down or, you know, somewhere in here that um, it's going to be the biggest one that anyone's ever seen. Um, and that's, that's to, to show the government that we mean business. This isn't going ahead. This is... And that's where we, we need everyone else's help involved. Um, because you know, it's you're, you're the people from here that live in Lane Cove. Um, we need your help. We, we can't do this alone. We've, we've been doing it like um, Tim and Prue and Tony and everyone have been doing it for too long. We need, we need people's help because um, it's, it's, it's really difficult to try and get people involved and keep them motivated. So, we, we'd love for people to keep motivated because um, you know, after a while, it, it gets a bit. Demoralizing, but you know, um, we we like to pick each other up every now and then, so we we do that pretty well. This isn't this isn't somewhere um, where we're going to be pushed around. You're dealing with people's futures and you're dealing with people's lives. Um, this is our livelihood. This is what we've done our entire lives. This is what we've all done our entire lives, and we're not going to stand for it. Um, you know, it's as everyone said, it's. Some of the best agricultural land in in the world. Um, it's it's not just our lives that are at risk and our livelihoods. It's Australia's food security. It's everyone's problem.
5: So that's it for uh, Beyond Zero Emissions for another Monday. Many thanks to the team as usual. Roger, Teddy, Miwa, Glenn, Vivian. I am Jane.